pray before we get into our teaching tonight. <clears throat> Lord, um, we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit tonight to bring uh, just the ability to know you, Lord, and to understand some of these deep things of God, the mysteries of God. Lord, as we study a topic that has just been controversial for centuries, Lord, uh, and there seems to be just some, some wonderful uh, truths on both sides, Lord, um, just with cometh humility today to learn and to grow and uh, to be taught, Lord, and I think of what Kevin said once, that we would learn and unlearn, Lord, where we need to learn or unlearn, um, Lord, I uh, just pray for humility among the, the class here tonight and uh, unity, Lord, even where there might be various opinions or positions, Lord, that uh, there would just be love at the foundation of it all, Lord. And um, Lord, would you be glorified as we study just your huge, important role in salvation, Lord? Um, be glorified and uh, just encourage us and stir us on to loving this world with the gospel, um, walking in, in empowerment as Christians because of the gospel, and, uh, and Lord, even just encouragement, uh, just how your, salvation, uh, your sovereignty and salvation is a very encouraging thing to, uh, to even us as we're Christians presently, Lord. And, and so just uh, we love you. It's because we love you, Lord, that we want to dive into these things even more just in worship to you. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So working our way through um, what are called the Loki communes, uh, which means common places. These are chief theme, themes of systematic theology, things that we've looked at. Over the last, uh, I don't know, what has it been, 14 weeks or something like that, uh, where we've looked at God's revelation of himself towards us. We've looked at who God is, who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit being God. We've looked at creation. Uh, we've looked at man being created in the image of God. And we've looked at sin. And uh, we looked at, two weeks ago, I think it was, at um, salvation and uh, uh, in-depth look at salvation, and uh, yet tonight we want to kind of be a little more specific in our salvation or soteriology, which is our studying of salvation, and look at the sovereignty of God, God's role uh, in salvation. Uh, as with many of the Loki, the doctrine of salvation is of great controversy. Uh, we are going to look at it tonight from both the Calvinistic view and the Arminian view, and a final view called Molinism, which is lesser known among uh, these other two popular uh, views. Um, if you've been a Christian for very long, you're well aware the subject is surrounded by great controversy, namely in discussing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So these are, uh, those are two blanks there on your sheets. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. A uh, very big topic. Uh, while no one has claimed to wrap their head around it, we do spend some time uh, trying to understand it as much as we can. 
Uh, this is not so much the historical theology of John Calvin or Jacob Arminian, but uh, the, the or or the theology that um, largely passes under their names. Um, but uh, really, more just the the God sovereignty aspect of it tonight, or the human responsibility aspect of it tonight. Um, both of these camps, and if you would include Molinism, all three of the camps include people who love Jesus, affirm both truths to some degree um, in their attempts of reconciling the two. Sometimes they can water down one in favor of the other. And in being faithful to the whole of the scripture, um, we will end up upholding to some degree both truths. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. Some of, I just thought as I was finishing up, sometimes we uh, quote a lot of guys and you have no clue, no clue who they are, but uh, just to give you some face to put with the names, Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, in a thesis on the subject, he says, the first is that the works of salvation rests upon the will of God and not upon the will of man. And secondly, the equally sure doctrine that the will of man has its proper position in the work of salvation and is not to be ignored. Ignored. <laughs> that is another way of saying ignored, in case you're wondering. Uh, Charles Simeon, <laughs> long ago, wrote, two, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two wheels on a machine going side by side, but in opposite directions. Uh, but each of them are working towards the good finishing of a product. J.I. Packer uh, wrote that we have an antimony of two truths laying side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, uh, like light, where both it has both particles and waves. And we don't know how that can be true, both particles and waves. Um, these are not rival or alternatives, but they're complementary to each other. Um, so... Our jobs, not so much to resolve the tension, but to see that they're both in Scripture to retain the tension, because uh, both are important. Uh, Spurgeon wrote, The great controversy, which for many ages has divided the Christian church, has hinged upon the difficult question of the will. I need not say of that conflict that it has done much mischief to the Christian church. Undoubtedly it has. But I will rather say that it has been fraught with incalculable usefulness, for it has thrust forward before the minds of Christians precious truths which but for it might have been kept in the shade. I believe that the two great doctrines of human responsibility and divine sovereignty have both been brought out um, the more prominently in the Christian church by the fact that there is a class of strong-minded, hard-headed men who magnify sovereignty at the expense of responsibility and another earnest and useful class who uphold and maintain human responsibility, oftentimes at the expense of divine sovereignty. I believe there is a needs-be for this in the finite character of the human mind. While the natural lethargy of the church requires a kind of healthy irritation to arouse her powers and to stimulate her exertions, the pebbles in the living stream of truth are worn smooth and round by friction. 
So in a way, it's good that there's this tension and this friction because it causes us to study it. <laughs> we would be really lazy if uh, we didn't you know, study to know what we believe. Um, some brethren have altogether forgotten one order of truths, and then in the next place, they've gone too far with others. Uh, this debate has gone on for um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. As I was reading today, to such a passionate and divisive degree that it came to a stalemate to where it was at the time of the papacy, where the church, Catholic Church was the church, uh, it was actually forbidden to be spoken of at one time. Uh, and any system that doesn't leave room for mystery or enigma is not a good system. Spurgeon also said, Do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able thoroughly to elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it round their fingers as easily as if it were an everyday thing. But depend upon it, he who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. He who dives deep finds that there is in the lowest depths uh, to which he can attain a deeper depth still. The fact is that the great questions about man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over and again and have been answered in 10,000 different ways. And the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. Uh, that is uh, Spurgeon who writes that. The combatants have thrown dust into each other's eyes and have hindered each other from seeing. And then they've concluded that because they put the other people's eyes out, they could therefore see. D.A. Carson writes, let me get his picture up there. <laughs> I could have picked a better one, but this is the one that came up on Wikipedia, so... There you go. <clears throat> By the way, not only will I be stepping back like Mark Driscoll because my ministry is getting so big... No, I'm not. But I'm going to be going to Arby Rogers, okay, like everybody else. D.L. Moody, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson. Casey Vaughn, what do you think about that? <laughs> All right. Carson, right? Rory Blake, by the way. Kevin Charles. A.S. Adam Stearns. Yeah. All right. Uh, Carson writes, I frankly doubt that finite human beings can cut the Gordian knot. At least this finite human being cannot. The sovereignty, responsibility, tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it is a framework to be explored. To explore this tension is to explore the nature of God and his ways with man or men. And Spurgeon, when asked how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, wrote, I don't need to reconcile friends. So uh, in looking at election, from the scriptures, we learn that God is completely sovereign. This means that God possesses in and of himself all power, all control, and all authority over everything. There are no limitations to the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 
Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. The contrast between the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man are this. Man's sovereignty is limited. God's sovereignty is without limit. Man's sovereignty is corrupted because he's naturally corrupt as a result of his sinful nature. As is said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. In contrast, God's sovereignty is without flaw because God is without flaw. We must understand God's sovereignty, though, in light of his nature. God is holy. God is good. And God is love. He's holy. He's good. He's love, among many other things that we studied in our attributes study. Because God is sovereign, he has the right to elect Alistair Begg, let's see here if I can find him. Oh, did I accidentally? I think we may have forgotten to put, throw Alistair on there. We had to re- reorganize some things. Wrote, predestination is a difficult doctrine, biblical doctrine, and a profitable doctrine. Eric Alexander, it's not a bomb to be dropped on people, a banner to be marched under, but a bastion for the souls of those who are in Christ. Alistair Begg says, when our hearts condemn us and we've messed up royally and everything seems to be against us, not working for good, where do we retreat? We go back to Christ and say, oh, the love of my Redeemer, who loved me before I knew you. You took the punishment I deserve and the guarantee is found in that you will never quit on a project just to bring a balanced approach, two different jokes. Bashing the Calvinists here real quick. <laughs> what do you call a Presbyterian who drinks Mountain Dew? A hyper-Calvinist, okay? And to discuss that the Calvinists aren't the only ones who have a flower, the tulip, the Armenians have a flower as well. The daisy, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. All right. I love you all. All right. So looking at uh, salvation from a Calvinistic perspective, um, we'll look at the interpretation of Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, uh, among some other scriptures tonight. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. A breakdown of this process of salvation is described in the chapter. First of all, we have the source of salvation, which is God the Father. In verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Secondly, the sphere that election takes place. The sphere is Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that they are elect before God the Father. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him. Thirdly, 
when the election takes place is seen, as it was before the foundation of the world, before the creation in Genesis 1-1, from past eternity this doctrine has already been made and is not lately arrived upon by God the Father, but was an eternal decision. The purpose of election is found in that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. having uh, And then we see he predestined us to adoption, and down in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the purpose of election is that, one, we should be holy and blameless. Two, adopted as his children. Three, to the praise of his glory. The motive behind election was love. We see at the end of verse 4, which leads him to elect and to save. And the basis of election is his will. It's verse 5 at the end, according to the good pleasure of his will. Therefore, election is unconditional. It's not something that we can merit, earn, bring about through our actions. This is an unconditional decision of God according to his will prior to the creation of the universe. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So as verse 5 concludes, it's all according to the good pleasure of his will. And then we see that in verse 11. It's, there's a predestination according to his purpose and according to the counsel of his will. And then we have another, uh, oh, real quick, this is according to God's purpose, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, then we have another large passage of soteriology uh, in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So notice that God's predestination is according to foreknowledge in verse 29. Now, non-Calvinists would say that this says that God looks into the future and sees those who would believe through faith in Jesus Christ and see that they would freely decide and then God chooses them. But the Calvinist response to that would say that this view of predestination makes predestination a sort of a fifth wheel and doesn't really do anything. If they will believe, there's no predestination because they will believe in him. Predestination, in this case, doesn't do anything. And foreordination or predestination becomes a superfluous, excuse me, superfluous, it's a word Paul uses, a worthless or uh, overused exercise on this part. This doesn't seem to be what is involved in predestination and should be considered in a different way, says the Calvinist. If what God does foresee is people's faith, 
That faith itself is a sovereign work of God, and God sees that he will bestow saving faith on those persons. And so what he sees is his own act of bestowing faith to those he has chosen. Passages that would support this view are John 3, 3 through 8, where Jesus answers Nicodemus and says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now listen, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this is something of a pun there in verse 8, as the word for wind is the same for that of spirit. You can't control the wind and it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, uh, which brings regeneration and new life. And then in three chapters, in John 6, 44 to 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here Jesus ascribes the drawing power of God to bring them to Christ. And apart from this work, people will not come to Christ. And if he draws them, they will come. In John 6, 65, in the same chapter, he says, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So, if someone is granted to come... They, they assuredly will, uh, pardon the typo, the assuredly will. And if he does not grant it, they cannot come to Christ. So when the gospel is preached and the free offer is communicated, there mysteriously comes the call of God who raises the dead to life. Now don't allow yourself to sidestep this instruction. This isn't the notion that there's a person who wants to believe but they're turned away by God's sovereignty, or there is such a person who doesn't want to believe but is forced to and compelled to. Uh, as Alistair Begg says, these are caricatures, and you will not find it in the Bible. Here is Mr. Jenkins who wants to come to Jesus, but Jesus turned him away. Seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. It was Begg that also said, truths that are contradictory to us are not contradictory in heaven. It's not the job of the pastor to explain the unexplainable. We cannot explain the unexplainable. There's mystery to it all. Some more passages here that are important are Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This salvation is not something uh, that is a work of yourself. It is from God, and he is the one who works it out. That is why there is no boasting, as verse 9 would go on to say. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the one who chooses, the Spirit sanctifies for obedience to Jesus. 
So as we go back to that Romans 8.28 passage, if it is true that God looks into the future and sees the individual's faith, uh, this faith is not a human work. It's not something that a natural person can generate, but it is a supernatural work of God on that person. One distinction of Calvinism here is that foreknowledge doesn't mean to know in advance, as though God looks into the future and finds out what will happen. But rather, for the Calvinists, this foreknowledge means that God loved them in advance and foreloved them, picking people that he would place his love upon. This is an active bestowal of favor and love upon the chosen. In Genesis 18:19, he says this of Abraham, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So in regards to Abraham, this knowing means I have favored, loved, and chosen Abraham. In Psalm 1-6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This means much more than that God is aware of what the righteous are doing, but means that God favors and bestows approval and personal commitment to the way of the righteous. Much more is involved here than just passive acquisition of knowledge about the righteous. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So when Romans 8.28 says, Those whom he foreknew, it was those he knew in advance to bestow favor and his grace for the Calvinists to interpret foreknowledge as just acquisition of knowledge is a thin view. Charles Horn, a Reformed theologian, didn't put him up there, writes, We have here a description of God's eternal counsel, what he does in eternity before the foundation of the world, and then its actualization of this counsel in the human affairs of life. So this God's eternal counsel is seen in the God foreknew whom he would save, or those whom he foreloved, then God's predestination, he ordained them to salvation. <clears throat> and then actualization of this eternal counsel. Actualization of this eternal counsel. And that actualization is found in three things that we see in Romans 8. There's a uh, called, called, and then the next blank will be justified, and then the next blank glorified. Called, justified, glorified. Uh, called is an effectual calling. All right, this is how the Calvinist views it effectual calling. Not a passive invitation. God reaching out and grabbing you and bringing you in. Jesus described it as a drawing to yourself. Called. All right. Justified by faith. We looked at that last week, uh, two weeks ago. Not something the unregenerate man can muster on his own, but bestowed on by God. And glorified. 
glorified. Uh, as you look at it, it's actually past tense and it gives assurance of salvation. So this call, justified, glorified, those whom he has called, he has also justified, those he has justified, he's also glorified, has been called the unbroken chain in God's process of salvation, or the golden chain of salvation. question is asked, was John Calvin a Calvinist? And uh, I'm not really going to get into these guys personal so much, but found this uh, in my studying, so I thought I'd include it. Um, He writes in the Institutes, by predestination we mean the eternal decree of God, by which he determined with himself whatever he wishes to happen with regard to every man. So it seems that John Calvin had the position of individual election, okay? And we'll see that distinction uh, with the Arminian view. But uh, Calvin here, individual election. He also writes, All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or to death. And then uh, John Calvin again, when God prefers some to others, choosing some and passing others by, the difference does not depend on human dignity or indignity. If what I teach is true, that those who perish are destined to death by the eternal good pleasure of God, though the reason does not appear, then they are not found, but made worthy of destruction. The eternal predestination of God, by which before the fall of Adam, he decreed what should take place concerning the whole human race and every individual, was fixed and determined. God chose out of the condemned race of Adam those whom he pleased and reprobated whom he willed. Uh, So this shows that Calvin was an advocate of individual predestination uh, and actually um, double predestination as well. So uh, that's, uh, I'm trying to be fair to each position. By the way, I'm going to try to bring a fair, you know, um, because actually I have a lot of guys on both sides I really respect. Probably read more um, of the Reformed guys or the Calvinistic guys. Um, but that's just, I'm not really in the circles of the Arminianists too much, although Calvary Chapel might be considered an Arminian perspective to a degree. But, um, man, I just have a huge respect for many Reformed guys and uh, quote them all the time, read them all the time. Don't agree with everything, but uh, I don't agree with everything on the other side either. So hopefully you're kind of getting this um, balance here. Um, and so that... Uh, I feel is a, a fair assessment of uh, the election part of Calvinism's understanding. Uh, here's calling. Uh, or I'm sorry, that was the... Uh, yeah. Somehow we skipped over here. Uh, back to calling. The Calvinist thinker distinguishes between a general call of God, which goes out to each person indiscriminately, and the special effectual call of God, which goes, excuse me, which is directed only toward the elect, those chosen by God. 
So a general call versus effectual call. The general call to repentance and faith is issued to all mankind. Uh, John 7, 37, on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a universal general invitation going out to all persons. Or Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Or Matthew twenty eight eighteen and 19, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So here they are commanded to go out to everyone and proclaim the gospel, not just to the elect, but to everyone. A general call. However, this general call is not intrinsically efficacious or powerful. People can ignore this general call. People can refuse to respond to it, repent and believe. Uh, therefore, the Calvinist says that there is an effectual, irresistible call. It will surely produce its effect and work in the person. Again, as you go to Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So not a general call. It's a special, effectual call um, of the predestined, the elect. Romans 1, 6, and 7 says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These are all illustrations of effectual calling. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Uh, you just look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Uh, there's distinguishing in the causes here. Number one, there's efficient cause in that it is God. There's moving or motivating cause. <clears throat> and then there's instrumental cause. Uh, first of all, efficient cause. 1 Corinthians 1, nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Or Galatians 1.15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, uh, it was God that set Paul apart before birth like he had with Jeremiah and then called Paul through grace. 2 Timothy 1, and we'll just look at 9, uh, who, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So the effectual cause of this special effectual calling toward the predestined and the elect is God himself. God is the cause. Then there's the moving cause, that which motivates this calling, and that's God's will. 2 Timothy 1.9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. As we see in Ephesians, or as we saw in Ephesians, it was simply God's will. There's nothing special in that person that would cause God to love them or to save them. It's simply God's inscrutable will. And thirdly, the instrumental cause the means of which the called goes out. It's the word of God. 
2 Thessalonians 2.14, to which he called you by our gospel. It was through the gospel. God reaches out to the chosen elect and calls them effectually uh, to his kingdom and justifies them. Wayne Grudem writes, We can honestly say that we chose to respond to Christ while also saying that it was in ways that we do not fully understand. Uh, the Calvinist would refer to this uh, uh, calling work of the Lord as um, monergism, if I'm saying that correctly, that God's the only one at work here, apart from synergism, which would be a cooperative effort of man and God. Uh, therefore, to God be the glory. The calling of God is one that we have no control, either originating it or frustrating it. We also have no boasting because the initiative lies with God, as Winslow writes. And I wonder how many guys have been quoting that I haven't been showing you their beautiful face. Oh, here's Wayne Grudem. Bam. And uh, here's Octavius Winslow. Bam. This is senior picture there. He wrote many years ago, has this call reached you? Ministers have called you, the gospel has called you, providence has called you, conscience has called you, but has the spirit called you with an inward and effectual vocation? Have you been spiritually called from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to holiness, from the world to Christ, from self to God? Examine your heart and ascertain. Oh, it is a matter of the greatest moment that you know you are truly converted, that you are the call of God. Has the thrilling, life-inspiring music of that call sounded and reverberated through all the chambers of your soul? That's the question. Uh, instead of going immediately to Romans 8.28 and using it as a mantra that seems easily applicable, Paul wrote it to all in Rome who were loved by God and called according to his purpose. Uh, called to be his saints. So that verse is not for everyone. It's not a statement you can simply apply to anybody as a self-help notion. For everyone else, the exact opposite would be the case. Nothing is working for your good. Even if it seems good at the moment, it's working towards death and destruction. God effectually called in a small boy's mind and heart, for example, giving that individual a, a dad or a mom who would explain the gospel to them. As Acts 13.48 says, when the Gentiles heard it, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Or Galatians 1.15 again, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Or Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13, you could probably go halfway down there, uh, how God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. And then Acts 16, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. This calling is God loving us. First John 4:19. we love him because he first loved us. When you ask somebody, why do you love me, you will ins uh, be enslaved to whatever they tell you. What happens when there's a recession or when your skin gets burnt and wrinkly? 
when somebody says, I love you just because. This is the pattern with God actually in Israel, where he tells them in Deuteronomy, I love you, not because you were great, but I love you because I love you. How does God's sovereignty bring me joy and suffering? As he speaks into the Romans in chapter 8, he's working all things for the good. Now to the matter of regeneration. Regeneration, a Calvinistic perspective. For those who are effectually called, God will produce regeneration in them. This will produce a quickening in them, spiritual life, where before there was spiritual death. In the Calvinistic system, regeneration is explanatorily... That's right. E-X-P-L-A-N A-T-O-R-I-L-Y Regeneration is explanatorily prior to faith. Okay? I want to say that just one more time. In the Calvinistic system, regeneration is explanatorily prior to faith. Not something that comes in response to faith. A spiritually dead person cannot exercise saving faith. He is spiritually dead. So God must do first the work of regeneration in him. That doesn't mean that these are chronologically one after another, though it could happen like that. But it could also be simultaneous, happen at the same time. God regenerates the person and he believes at the same time. This is explanatorily, or excuse me, this is explanatory priority, not chronologically, okay? Let me, I'll I'll give you a a description in a second. But remember, the faith is, is a result of God's regenerative work. It is not that the person has faith, And God has regenerated him as the result. Now let me help you understand this explanatory priority, okay? Imagine a chandelier hanging from the ceiling. The chain is explanatorily prior to the chandelier. It is not the chandelier that is forcing the chain to hold on. It is vice versa, even though they are simultaneously hanging in the air. The relation of dependence is that the chandelier depends on the chain, not the chain relying on the chandelier. Why is the chandelier dangling in the air? Because it is suspended by a chain attached to the ceiling. In the same way, even if regeneration and faith take place simultaneously, the person has faith because God has regenerated him. Uh, And for the Calvinists, they look at this spiritually dead person, okay? How God said, the moment you eat from this fruit, you're dead spiritually. Uh, A spiritually dead person cannot put their faith in God. It's really an interesting view. Uh, What that means is that salvation isn't given in response to faith. It's not as if you place your faith in Christ and then are born again. God does a secret work of calling you and does a work in your heart of regenerating you, causing you to put your faith in Christ. See the heavy um, emphasis on God's sovereignty here, okay? 
this idea holds that only regenerate people uh, can put their faith in Christ. Faith is the result of being regenerated because an unregenerate, spiritually dead person cannot exercise saving faith. So the Calvinist idea is that uh, even if these occur simultaneously, regeneration explains saving faith. Conversions may even come sometime later. The person may, having been regenerated, then begin to seek out baptism, begin to identify as a Christian, read their Bible and pray. These are fruits of regeneration. Saving faith for the Calvinist will involve the knowledge, assent, and trust formula here. Uh, knowledge, where they understand the gospel, then assent, where they agree with the gospel, and then trust, placing their faith in what Christ has done, placing their faith in Christ and God. This kind of saving faith is something only a regenerate person can exercise. Uh, another illustration would be like a dead car battery that doesn't start the car. The jumper cables zap the battery so the key can be turned and the engine will work. Regeneration is like the zapping of the battery, which is alive, and faith is the turning of the ignition so the car can start. Uh, a conclusion to Calvinism here. Um, a critique of Calvinism, real quick, would be that because of such a strong influence of God's sovereignty in it, and he knows who's going to be saved, and it's these specific people. So, like, a, a hyper end of thing would say, don't evangelize, um, because you could be evangelizing to people who aren't supposed to be saved. And I know that's tweaked. I'm probably not explaining it quite right, but um, that would be, like, a hyper-misconstrued view of it. And so John Murray... Um, wrote, uh, as he lived from 1898 to 1975, Scottish-born Calvinist theologian who taught at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary and then left to start Westminster um, Seminary, wrote this as kind of a response to that. The passion for mission is quenched when we lose sight of the grandeur of the gospel. It is a fact that many persuaded as they rightly are of the particularism of the plan of salvation and of its various corollaries, have found it difficult to proclaim the full, free, and unrestricted overture of gospel grace. They have labored over inhibitions arising from fear that in doing so they would impinge upon the sovereignty of God in his saving purposes and operations. The result is through formerly... Uh, assenting to the free offer of the gospel, uh, or excuse me, though formally assenting to the free offer of the gospel, they lack freedom in the presentation of its appeal and its demand. Uh, there are certain people who are frightened to impress upon people the free gospel just in case people get saved who God doesn't want to be saved. Uh, in the way you finally end up in heaven by understanding um, the golden or the order salutes or the golden chain of salvation just right uh, is the way you get there by understanding these things just right. Uh, nobody goes to heaven saved by understanding this chain of salvation just perfectly. Everybody goes to heaven by, not everybody, uh, if you're in heaven, <laughs> you got to heaven um, by 
faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, as Alistair Begg gives us the illustration, if the thief on the cross was interviewed, are you here according to the foreknowledge of God? Have you been predestined? Are you called according to his purposes? The thief would say, I don't know what you're talking about. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. Somehow in the mystery of Christ, everything led to that moment when he said, we are hanging here because we deserve it. He didn't do anything wrong. How do you get up here for not doing anything wrong? It must be because he's taking my place. I'm going to ask him if because he's taking my place, if he would allow me to take his place. John Piper says, got a picture of him. Are you foreknown, predestined? Do you see Jesus as more to be desired than anything else? Is his sacrifice sufficient to save? The intellectual understanding of election is not what's needed. But will you have him? God help us not to be stumbled at what we don't get, but that we take you at your word and look back and see we've been chosen from the foundation of the world. So there's a lot of good truth in what we looked at uh, in the Calvinism perspective. And uh, we're moving on to the Arminian perspective now. There's uh, Ryan Couch. Before, uh, it's the first thing I thought when I saw that. Oh, whoops. Uh, that was when he was in the Acts 29 process. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, they have, uh, go to the same scripture in Ephesians regarding God's sovereignty and salvation. Uh, and for the sake of time, we won't read it all. But if you have your notes there, note all the underlined in Christ's, in Christ's, in hymns, all right? There's two points of interpretation that need to be emphasized in the Arminian understanding of this passage. First of all, that the election is Christocentric, just Christ with an O in it, Christocentric. Oh, me too. Uh, it is in Christ that that person is elect. Okay? Let me say that one more time. It's Christocentric. You, do you find it, Barb? Okay, cool. It is in Christ that that person is elect. Election concerns those who are in Christ. Insofar as a person is in Christ, he is elected. And predestination and predestined, as the passage teaches. Uh, uh, the second interpretation is that election is corporate in nature rather than an individual. That is to say, it is a body, group, or corporate entity that God has elected. Insofar as a person is a part of that corporate entity in Christ, he is called, elected, and predestined. There's an analogy for a corporate election. While getting his affairs in order, a man places an inheritance in his will for his grandchildren when even though, uh, I don't know why that word when is there, even though none of them have been born yet, okay? It is after he dies that he has grandchildren who are given an inheritance offer but have the free will to deny it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. D.L. Moody, a, a famous evangelist that we're reading of in our book, wrote, The elect are the whosoever wills, the non-elect are the whosoever won'ts. 
Uh, and then uh, Robert Schenck, uh, who wrote a book uh, called Elect in the Sun, gives us this Arminian perspective in our notes here. Let me see your notes real quick. Can I see? Okay, so you have it there. Okay. Um, he writes... A second aspect of election is implicit in Paul's Ephesian doxology. The election to salvation is corporate as well as Christocentric. The corporate nature of election has been noted by many. In his comment on Ephesians 1.4, Lightfoot writes, The election of Christ involves implicitly the election of the church. Westcott comments on Ephesians 1.4, Ex alexato, he chose us i.e. Christians as a body, verse 3, for himself out of the world. Bloomfield comments on Ephesians 1.5, the apostle has here no reference to the personal election of individuals. And Lange comments in Ephesians 1.3, us should be taken in its wider meaning and should not be limited to the apostle, nor to the Jewish Christians but implies to his people all men who become or will become Christians. Then have a following passage here. The corporate inference in Lang's words above is substantiated by his comment on Romans 8, 28 through 30. Christ is the elect in God's real kingdom in the absolute sense, so that all his followers are chosen with him as organic members according to their organic relations. Obviously, the corporate body of the elect is compromised of individuals, but the election is primarily corporate and only secondarily particular. The thesis that election is corporate, as Paul understood it and viewed it in the Ephesian doxology, is supported by the whole context of this epistle. What follows are a series of verses that indicate the corporate nature of election. Gathered together in one all things in Christ, the redemption of the purchased possession, his inheritance in the saints, the church which is his body, who has made us both one to make himself of the two one new man, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, the household of God, all the buildings fitly framed together, a holy temple, building together for an habit, a habitation of God, of the same body, the mystery from the beginning of the world, now disclosed in the church as fulfillment of the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Glory in the church of Christ Jesus throughout all ages, one body, the body of Christ, the whole body fitly joined together, increase of the body, we are members of one another. Christ is the head of the church, the savior of the body. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. They too shall be one flesh, but I speak concerning Christ and the church." So, according to Shank, God's concept of this group is a body called to be sanctified and glorified, and it is up to individuals as to whether they want to be part of that corporate body. How do they become part of that body? By placing their faith in Christ. It is in Christ, part of this corporate body, that one is elect. Here, Shank contrasts Calvin's doctrine of election with the Arminians. A central thesis of Calvin's doctrine of election may be stated thus. 
The election to salvation is of particular men unconditionally who comprise the corporate body incidentally. A central thesis of the biblical doctrine of election may be stated thus. The election to salvation is corporate and comprehends individual men only in identification and association with the elect body. Shank's view is that the object of election is the corporate view and individuals are elect in a partial sense only in so much as they are part of this group. Identify with it and partake of its blessings. We'll also look at the interpretation of Romans 8, 28 through 30. Uh, because we just read it, we'll not read the whole scripture right now. Uh, what the Arminians emphasize is that the call by which God calls men to salvation is not a general call, or I'm sorry, uh, insincere call, but genuine. God really wants people to be saved every time he calls to them. Second Peter 3, nine says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so Shank begins to criticize the Calvinist view here by saying, Thus the call addressed by God to all, by design of God, is not to all, but only to some. The ungodly have an asylum to which they may betake themselves from the bondage of sin, to quote Calvin, and they are utterly without excuse for not doing so, despite the fact that God by immutable decree has rendered them totally unable to do anything other than to ungratefully reject the offer that is made to them. When God asks, why will you die? The real answer is that God has so ordained. God so loved the world that he determined that few shall believe and be saved. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, cries God to a lost world, while making certain that most men do not comply. Whoever will, let him come, pleads the risen Christ, while the Father makes certain that most men will not come. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But he has effected a hidden arrangement, ensuring that most of the world shall not be saved. So obviously he writes with considerable sarcasm about the Calvinist view that the calling is insincere and is a sham because though he call, he will that some not come to it and not respond to it. Schenck also distinguishes between the two factors of election and predestination. That election, uh, in the Arminian view, is a corporate calling, calling out of a church, people, or body. And predestination is foreordaining the elect to conformity to the image of Christ. While they are the same thing to the Calvinist election and predestination, they are not the same thing to the Arminian. Uh, an illustration here, to, again, of this corporate group. <clears throat> we are going to have a group of people go to Israel. I wish I was saying that like we really were soon. Okay, maybe sometime. Um, on a tour. Anyone who wants to sign up can do so, but those who sign up are guaranteed to go to Galilee, walk on the walls of Jerusalem, and go to the garden tomb. But that's not a guarantee as to who is in the group. It's primarily a corporate notion and becomes individual only secondarily in virtue of people joining the group. 
the view of faith for an Arminian. For the Arminian, faith is not something bestowed upon us prior to our independent choice or our own exercise of free decision to believe in Christ. Uh, Romans 9.18, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Uh, shows it is God's discretion whom he will save and whom he will pass over. But the next verse shows us who this is. Romans 9, 22 through 24. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God in his sovereignty has chosen to elect for himself not only Jewish people, but Gentiles as well. Romans 9, 30 through 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained the righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. It is by grace through faith that one becomes part of this elect body. God has chosen to save all who put faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 6 through 9, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So faith is the key factor in putting oneself into this body of elect persons as a son of Abraham and a partaker of God's promises. Romans 10, 12 through 13 at the end says, uh, it's actually, uh, yeah, end of 12, to all who call upon him, he's rich, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So faith is the distinguishing factor of the elect. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. The word faith here is in the feminine, and if your version says that or this, in the picture there it says this, uh, it's neutered, which means it's not referring to faith, but to the whole arrangement that is not of ourselves. So the arrangement, for by grace you've been saved through faith, is not your own doing, it is a gift of grace. Faith is the factor in determining if you're part of the elect. In contrast to a Calvinist view, Armenians regard this grace as resistible. In Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. It seems God's saving grace is offered freely to all persons and those who respond with faith will be saved into the elect group. But this is not an irresistible unilateral work of God, but it is a work that requires a free human response. A question would be, does this affect God's omnipotence? God's power doesn't go against logic to do the logically impossible like making a round square or a married bachelor. It is logically impossible for him to make someone freely do something. God's inability to make someone do something freely doesn't affect his omnipotence any more than him making a stone so heavy he cannot lift it. 
God isn't the unilateral cause of everything that happens. Question. If God is wooing us, then why aren't people being saved? An answer is though God wills for men to be saved and give a genuine call to repentance, ultimately it will be human freedom that will preclude God's salvific will to be accomplished. The fact that universalism isn't true is a big argument for man's free will. As William Lane Craig says, it seems to me that the notion of corporate election does make good sense in many of the passages, particularly Romans 10 and 9 and 10. Paul's burden in 9 and 10 is that it is up to God to whom he will save and who he will damn. Gentiles and Jews will be saved if they place their faith in Christ regardless of their ethnic origin. Paul says in Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. A statement impossible on the Calvinistic view because only the elect and effectually and irresistibly called can call on the name of the Lord. Also, all of the corporate metaphors that are used seem good arguments. However, Craig says, I don't think that corporate election is the whole story. Like in passages of Acts 13, 48. Now the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. believed. Let me read that again. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This is a remarkable statement. Can't be misconstrued as corporately. He's talking about individuals who responded to the gospel. Uh, the verb here is tasso. It's in the past perfect in the Greek, meaning to appoint, to designate, or to set aside for eternal life. And so the Arminianists attempt to say that in that verse, as many as were disposed to eternal life believe. That is, those who are had the disposition towards eternal life. It's not a plausible interpretation because, number one, the form is in the passive voice indicating that God is the subject. It is all of those who God had ordained to eternal life. The use of the passive voice indicates that God is the active subject of the verb. He has appointed the people to eternal life. The context of the theology of the book of Acts shows that Luke believes people are foreordained to eternal life as individuals. As you look in Acts 4.24, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, RSV says, Sovereign. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Here you have Herod and Pilate named as individuals along with the people of Jerusalem and the Gentiles were there to do whatever God's hand had planned for them or foreordained. The expression in the Greek is whatever you prioritize, I guess, <laughs> to ordain in advance. Whatever your will foreordain to happen is what happened. Acts 2.23 him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Peter speaks of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, which included the crucifixion of Jesus. The Greek, your foreordained will and the foreknowledge of God. 
It's the Greek word aphortizo, to put aside or to set apart before he was born as an individual, not corporately. Acts 9.15 says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. In the Greek, it's chosen vessel or instrument that God has chosen to use. Acts 26.19, Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's a key verse. If you've got a pen, you might just kind of circle that again. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Even though God had set Paul apart as an individual, he didn't seem to think this was something that was irresistible, but he was obedient and did what he was told to do. On the one hand, we have the sovereignty of God that does seem to extend to individuals. And at the same time, we have the affirmation of freedom that one is able to resist what God has planned and ordained. So how do we put these two things together? There's mystery between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's tension. Tension is good. It's what keeps bridges up and keeps guitars in tune. And at this point, when our brains are about to explode, don't worry. Paul's was too when he wrote it all. In Romans chapter 11, he just has to just worship and just say, Oh, the depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. If you're in the place where you don't get this or can't possibly see how this could all be, you're in the safe company. Paul did his best in Romans 9, 10, and 11 with a great mind and a great heart and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write about God's sovereignty and his dealings with salvation will towards Israel. He finally falls on his face and worships God and says, God gets it. C.S. Lewis says, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both two pillars of the faith that rise up to heaven and meet somewhere before the throne of God. Um, I think it's Beg that says, a big sign hangs over the entryway of Christianity that says, whosoever will may come. Then when you went in, you look back and over the archway read, chosen before the foundations of the world. And you say, wow, God loved me before I ever knew of him. And I think the best way to understand both of these tensions would be through the divine middle knowledge view or Molinism. And just so you know, I'm not a Molinist, but to me it makes sense well with these two uh, I don't like to label myself for one thing, and so I've read things of Molinism. I'm like, oh, I'm not there, you know, I'm just not there. I might read something in Calvinism. I'm, I'm not there, you know. Arminian, I'm not there. I'm there. Or, I'm there. Or, I'm there. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, cop out, I know. Uh, but with this Molinism, uh, Molinist view, oh, let me see if I got a picture of uh, oh, Louis, or he's Spanish, so it'd be just Louis, I guess, I don't know. There he is. Ryan Couch again. He's all over the place. I'm teasing. I don't know. Uh, um, the Molinist view of divine providence is from the Jesuit counter-reformer Louis Molina, who would look at a passage like 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
According to Molina, God knows how every possible person he might create would freely respond in any set of circumstances that God might place him in. This would provide the key to his providence that the book of Acts states. Uh, You should have a little image there uh, where there's three moments, uh, and and they might all happen at the same time. Uh, You have the natural view where it's what could happen or what can happen. And God in his omniscience and sovereignty he knows everything that could happen. And there's like billions and trillions and millions, bazillions, gazillions of options. All right. Everything that could ever, ever happen. All right. But then there's the middle knowledge, what would happen. So then he kind of is narrowed down to what would happen if this and this, or what would happen if this and this. And then there's this time of the divine creative decree where God in his sovereignty, in his foreknowledge and everything He chooses, and he does it. Uh, It's the free moment. What will happen, where God makes it happen. God knew how Herod and Pilate would respond in first century Palestine. He knew how the Jews in the city of Jerusalem would respond in those circumstances, and the plan unfolds according to God's understanding and foreknowledge. For Melina, the circumstances in which God places someone include various gifts of grace and workings of the Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation. God knows whether a person would respond to his grace in any set of circumstances that he would place the individual in. God knew if he appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, that Saul would obey the vision and not be disobedient. So he chooses to appear to Saul in this way. Not robbing Saul of freedom, but giving him the right circumstances to place him in to bring about salvation. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, uh, Paul preaches in Athens, uh, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So even before the foundation of the world, he knew who would respond and who would reject and when they would do that. Uh, Molina believed God provides sufficient grace for salvation to every person he creates. In Molinism, God's will for human salvation is truly universal. God wants everyone to be saved. And this grace is given to all persons sufficient for their salvation. Uh, does God really want all people to be saved? Well, the congruism here, C-O-N-G-R-U-I-S-M, congruism, is a form of Molinism that says there is congruent, corresponding grace that God offers. God knows what gifts of grace would be met with a free affirmative response. He knows what circumstances to place him in for him to respond and to be saved. Well, if that's the case, that God knows all the circumstances for all men to be saved, why aren't all men saved? The congruence would say it's because there is no feasible world available to God in which all these circumstances are compossible. For them to be cobbled together in such a way that all would be saved, some would freely reject his grace. While there are possible worlds that everyone would be saved, It may be that there are no feasible worlds available to God in which there is universal salvation. 
the congruent Molinist would say God prefers a world in which not everybody will respond to be saved. That view gets you as close to Calvinism as you can possibly get and still have free will. It's to say that God could have elected to save all, yet he's chosen a world in which some would freely reject him. Why would he choose such a world? Perhaps the Calvinists would have an answer, maybe to bring him more glory or to show his justice. There is mystery, but this will get you everything the Calvinist wants to have, but without annihilating human freedom. There's a couple of options in answer to the question as to why God's universal salvific will is not achieved. And it does seem that a middle knowledge perceptive perspective supplements what we've seen in regards to corporate election and showing how people can be elected and predestined and foreordained, but still have human freedom. In all of this, I hope we are all aware of our sin, our inadequacy, our inability to save ourselves. And if anybody gets saved, it's because of the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon writes, what was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask that question without tears in our eyes. I think throughout eternity, if we have this problem to solve, why did he call me? We still go on making wrong guesses. We can never arrive at the wrong conclusions. Uh, we can never arrive at the wrong conclusions unless we should say once and for all, I do not know, I do not know, and it is to the praise of God's grace. At the end of the day, I lift up my hands and say, I do not know. I do not know why I've been saved, why I have a wife and kids and I've never, uh, never been sexually abused or addicted to drugs or involved in criminal activity. I don't know why God chose that path. D.L. Moody would cry out, Lord, save the elect, and then elect some more. Spurgeon, again, when asked how he would reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, said, I don't need to reconcile friends. If you jump down here to uh, the Douglas Moo, second to the last quote, Douglas Moo wrote the book on Romans, said, we need perhaps to be more cautious in our formulations and to insist on the absolute criticality and meaningfulness of the human decision, decision to believe. At the same time, we rightly make God's choosing us of us ultimately basic. Such a double emphasis may strain the boundaries of logic. It does not, I trust, break them or remain unsatisfyingly complex, but it may have the virtue of reflecting Scripture's own balanced perspective. John Stott wrote, I think I got a picture of him here for you, a little closing pic. There, there he is. Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systemize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. At the same time, election is a doctrine taught by Jesus himself. I know those I have chosen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.